0: Welcome to the Climate Kobe Podcast. I'm Sammy and in this episode I am joined by Isaac and another SGCR member, Yongfeng, to talk about degrowth. You may have heard of degrowth, post-growth, or donut economics. They are all part of a growing movement to talk about how we can organize our economies in a different way, whereby economic growth is no longer the priority as it is today we discuss how pursuing endless economic growth may not bring us greater happiness, it's not possible without threatening the livability of our planet, as well as examples of how degrowth could look like. And of course, we try to discuss degrowth
1: in the context of Singapore and bring in climate justice. Okay, so hi, Yongfong. Can you briefly introduce yourself and get this discussion going with a simple definition of degrowth and why you're studying it?
2: Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a member of SGCR and I've been here about three months in Barcelona. I'm doing a Master in Political Ecology, Environmental Justice and Degrowth at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. And actually, I think I, I first came across the idea of Degrowth when you, from you, actually, when you organized this uh, Degrowth webinar way back in 2020. And then I started to read more about it and I think the idea that we cannot sustain infinite growth on a finite planet is quite evident and made a lot of sense to me, but how to achieve that and how to make sure it's uh, done in a just and uh, equitable way is an, is an open question, which is why I came here to learn more about it. I think to put it simply, uh, degrowth is about having a reduction in material and energy use while also securing well-being for all, and uh, the the degrowth movement achieve uh, argues that this is possible to achieve, and also I think um in recent years degrowth has uh, gotten a bit more attention from the mainstream media too, uh it's been covered in the foreign policy financial times and the economist, and uh, recently the European Parliament also held a beyond growth conference which was also attended by like the the European uh parliamentarians, mm-hmm. so it's it's gotten a lot more uh noticed and, and thought in recent years?
1: Mm. Yeah, I have to say I'm quite uh, honoured, I guess. I personally learned about uh, degrowth through participating in a book club when I was in Amsterdam, and I've been trying to find others in Singapore who are also interested to explore this because it has to be kind of explored more in the local context. Um so let's first unpack what you're saying about infinite growth on a finite planet. So a key critique offered by degrowth is that um the current system has this logic of growth and the system says that economic growth is necessary, it is good and it must be pursued at all costs. So can you talk a little about how economic growth is linked to environmental degradation?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think a key um insight that degrowth brings is uh from the the concept of uh, biophysical limits. Uh, this is talked about also in other uh, fields like donut Economics or ecological economics, which talks about uh planetary boundaries or ecological limits. And then we can see historically. Uh, researchers have mapped this out when you draw a graph uh, with uh energy use or material use on the y-axis, the vertical axis, and then uh GDP on the other axis, you can see a very clear correlation between the two. So uh as GDP has gone up, material and energy use has also gone up. And um it's quite clear that but there are limits to to material and energy use because um because of, of, of how much we have on our planet. So it's not really possible to keep on growing and uh and exceed these uh, limits. Mm. And um, there, there's been examples like um people say, oh, we can grow without needing to use more energy because of new technology, uh, because of decarbonization. But the the few examples of, uh, this is called decoupling, and the few examples of decoupling that has have happened is still uh, not enough or far from the, the speed or the extent that is needed to align with uh, 1.5 degree world.
1: Mm. I think there's also a difference between um relative decoupling and absolute decoupling uh whereby the uh, relative decoupling is when the rate of economic growth is faster than the rate of uh, environmental degradation, but then what we need is actually absolute decoupling whereby environmental degradation goes up uh, goes down, but then economic growth goes up. But yes, um, and maybe also this idea of uh, importing um, emissions, right? When we calculate um, how much environmental growth is associated with um, environmental degradation, I think there are studies that show that countries that seem to have achieved this so-called decoupling actually do that by having a lot of activities happen outside of their national borders.
2: Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so a lot of times we look at emissions on a country level, and then this excludes um, things like aviation or shipping that are not c- counted under the national uh, accounts. But mm-hmm. also, um, it doesn't account for uh, the the emissions or the carbon footprint of of products that we import. So, um, looking at some uh, some statistics from the World in Data, it, it said in twenty twenty one Singapore's emissions based on consumption was mm-hmm. one hundred and sixty five million tons, which is uh, more than three times the, the national emissions of 56 million tons. So even when we talk about like uh, our national emissions, and we focus so much on that, but we, we still don't account for these uh, the wider scope of emissions that are due to Singapore's consumption, which is much greater. Mm. And that's only emissions, but then we, we're talking about energy and material use in general. So another example is deforestation. Uh, Singapore is a, a very high driver of deforestation, not within our own borders because we have not a lot of forest left to this de- uh, deforest, but but in our neighboring countries. Um, in 2021, uh, the study in 2021 showed that Singapore was the fifth highest in per capita tree loss.
3: Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I guess I um, wanted to ask maybe both
3: of you, Sammy, feel free to join in as well, uh, because yeah, I've begun reading more about the growth movement and I don't disagree with like the mm-hmm. main aspect of it which is that, you know uh, economy based on endless growth it's not sustainable but I wanted to maybe ask you guys a little bit on the socio-political aspects because you know uh, likely or not people still view economic growth uh, as an indicator of how well both the country and they themselves are doing you know, in terms of like jobs, income, and so on. The economy grows, there's more jobs, more income, things like that. So as such, you know, I feel that degrowth as a political movement uh, might be a bit of a hard sell because of that "d" de- part of degrowth. People don't like it when you tell them, oh, you need to consume less. Uh, the economy needs to shrink a bit. And people will be like, huh, then my lifestyle will be affected. things like that. So I don't know, what would be your response to that?
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely uh that's definitely a concern. And uh it, it can't be it can't be a, a scenario where, where you we tell people, oh, you have to cut down this and cut out that, and then uh, they end up uh, living what worse lives because then no no one's gonna sign up for that. So this is also an important part of the degrowth the, the uh sort of research or um agenda. And uh yeah, I think like in the definition I said earlier. It, it was not just about reducing but also ensuring well-being for all. So uh, there's also a lot of research to show how this is possible and like we don't really need to keep growing to, to achieve this. Uh, one example is like studies on happiness or, or well-being. So uh, a lot of studies show there's little correlation between happiness and GDP or like when you go up to a certain level of GDP uh, per, per capita and and uh, then you reach a saturation point where like if you go any higher it doesn't really bring you more uh, happiness so it kind of shows that we don't really need that much to fulfill our basic needs and um what what really like affects uh, happiness or well-being is it could be other things like uh one one big thing is inequality uh when you have huge inequalities within a society then that leads to social comparisons uh, who has more, who has less and then that leads to dissatisfaction so it's not really about like the overall level of wealth but the, the disparities within the society mm. and um, another point is uh, hedonic adaptation uh, which basically means that people adapt to whatever level of uh, well-being or materials they have so I think you can just think about simply like when you buy a new pair of uh, jeans and then you feel uh, happy for a few days, but then after a while, it just becomes normal and then the, the effect wears off. So it's very easy that people adapt to new things and then it doesn't really significantly improve your level of well-being.
1: Right. And I guess you touched on this um aspect of inequality, right? I think that the growth also tries to be clear about how it's not um necessarily asking that everyone reduce their levels of consumption at the same rate because in fact a key aspect of it is recognizing that there's a lot of uh inequality <clears throat> in the world uh with a lot of income concentration mm-hmm. so then the wealthier uh would need to reduce more and this can be at like the global level so global north countries compared to global south countries but also within countries uh, as well.
2: Uh, there was a recent uh, report by Oxfam on climate inequality, and it's, it showed how the top 1% of uh, global incomes were responsible for 16% of emissions, which is the same as the poorest 66% of humanity. So this is a huge uh, kind of inequality. And also the, the level of emissions is uh, 27 times above the limit needed to be compatible with a 1.5 degrees world. And I think sometimes we think like, "Oh, it's all the wealthy for I like, guess, the top one percent, but we also need to be mindful that um if you look at the global top one percent, I think that that um it accounts for about ten the top ten percent of Singaporeans because Singapore is quite a wealthy country. Mm. so um it is also incumbent on on um these Singaporeans to to cut down consumption mm-hmm. and and you're right. then then those who are at a lower income level, uh, who are below the, the this uh limit of of um emissions then they, they have space to so that they have space to grow and they have space to to have more uh improve their well being
1: mm. yeah i guess um another i would say selling point of degrowth that i can add um is this idea of like work time reduction uh so singapore is one of the countries with the longest working hours in the world and I think for degrowth, it is also um, this aspect of achieving greater well-being if we are able to cut down on the number of hours that we work a week. And then we have time to spend on other things that might be less uh, material intensive, but then be able to bring us more um, satisfaction in our lives. Um, So I guess it's really important to see uh, degrowth not as like about minusing things but changing uh the way that we lead our lives and move it in a direction that uh we want, um, want it to be um yep
3: yeah I think that's a that, that's a good selling point I think you all should start with that
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think another uh, one more point on this uh, topic is that uh, when we look at what constitutes GDP it doesn't mm-hmm. really account for uh, uh environmental uh services or work or care or reproductive work uh for example if you if you leave a forest there that doesn't contribute to gdp right but if you you you, you cut it down and then you build a new apartment then that that it adds to your gdp um so it also, it's also about like how do we find better ways of um, measuring uh well-being or uh what what we are producing in the economy that's not tied to this uh indicator mm. and uh because yeah, it's not it's not always that when you increase GDP, you directly increase um well-being or you do things that are useful for the economy, for society or for economy.
1: Yeah. Ultimately it's about not using economic growth as a proxy. I think it it's a I guess it's a simple, like a, a one number and it's very clear, but then it has like all these shortcomings. Um but instead. It's about focusing on what the priorities themselves are, like what we want in our lives is not necessarily a high income, but really what that high income can afford us in a system that we have, right? So um, we want to focus on social and environmental well-being thems- themselves. But we've talked about um, how the system that we are currently in does not necessarily encourage people to achieve greater well-being, nor... Em- minimize our impact on the environment. Um yeah. So if I want to work less right now, then it might be quite difficult to um yeah, like achieve what I want to. So maybe we should talk a little about the policies that have been pr- proposed uh, from degrowth scholars, uh, whereby the government can do something so that degrowth can happen or at least kind of be in that direction. Uh whether it's like reducing resource use, working, producing less?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I think for, for your case, um, yeah, for working less, one, one of the proposals is a universal basic income or universal basic services mm-hmm. uh, so that people are guaranteed a minimum level of uh, standard of living. Uh, but then on the other side of that, there are also right yeah. now we have a lot of unemployment, Um, people who want to work but can't. And so another proposal uh, uh, under the the degrowth um, kind of basket of policies uh, is a job guarantee, and this means that uh, for anyone who is willing to and wants to work, uh, the government can give them a job, um, and this will ensure that uh, people who who need jobs or need income are a guaranteed one, and also it helps to uh, serve as a wage floor. So if the government is re- it guarantees this, a job at this wage it, it also um, pushes private companies to offer uh, better jobs at, at, at this wage so that they can um, be still be attractive jobs um and having full employment also solves a whole range of social problems uh, when people are engaged and fulfilled then um and spend their time uh, learning skills and, or gaining experience uh that will also overall contribute to to society um well-being um and the drop guarantee uh, is something that can be financed by governments that can control their own money um in line with modern monetary theory which is also something that's been uh, in in uh vote recently uh it says that governments can uh, pay for whatever it wants to spend for uh as long as it can control inflation so so This is something that is technically feasible as long as there's political will to do so. And lastly, um, with this job guarantee, another benefit is that the jobs can be channeled towards uh, what is lacking in the economy. So uh, instead of uh, jobs that use a lot of resources or materials, it can be jobs that are uh, geared towards environmental protection or care work, things that are less energy and material intensive and the the kind of jobs that we need to transition away from uh, the carbon intensive economy.
3: These policies do sound good, um, but I was wondering, you know, it all sounds very state intervention heavy, require a strong state to do all this. But, uh, um, you know, are there any examples of degrowth in action on the ground uh, for ground up initiatives in local communities, maybe in Barcelona, if you've seen any on the ground?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I think there are also different theories or strategies on how to achieve degrowth. Some are the top down, like what we talked about earlier, or government policies, but also people argue that we should start from the bottom up. Uh, that's how you can get people on board and then slowly grow the movement. And um, I think there are a lot of examples, maybe not all of them are like um explicitly named degrowth, but they do align with uh, the principles of the movement. So something that quite uh new to me when, when I first came to Barcelona is, is that there are a lot of um, uh, social centers but these are not like government led community clubs like we have in Singapore. Uh, a lot of them are squatted spaces. So, like, they are abandoned buildings where people uh, came in and occupied the space and then uh, sort of fought for the right to stay there. And um, they also end up uh, not using not just for housing, but also um, self organizing and uh, having events, classes, uh, things to bring the local community together. And uh, there's one good example of a space uh, called Khan Bhatio, where it was an abandoned factory which the government actually wanted to redevelop into office spaces but then the local community came together to protest uh, they, they demanded that it stay uh, to, to be used for for them and eventually the the developer that was going to redevelop it uh, they 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 relented and then uh, they allowed them to keep this building and up to today it's still very well used lots of events happening music uh, uh games and uh just also providing a lot of uh, services to the community and uh, i think recently there was a study by a, a non-profit group that showed that when you calculate the value of the services provided by this community center it actually um it actually brings a lot of value and um, Kind of, um, it was used to to convince the government that it should remain. And if actually, uh, right now, I think the government also provides some funding to support the the running of the space.
1: Right, and it shows how maybe um when people organize to try out these things, and then the government kind of responds by supporting it as well. I think it's quite important to kind of talk about how although we are like very far away from a uh, degrowth kind of system or economy right now. Yeah, that there are these um, initiatives that are trying to practice it, even though it's quite difficult. And a lot of them rely on like volunteering, but it's a lot of coming up with new ways of like organizations. So um, personally, I'm a part of two cooperatives in Norway. And cooperatives have also existed for a long time as like a business organi- uh, form of organization. And in many ways, not always, it can uh, align with degrowth growth uh, principles, I think. So um, yeah, I think it's really important to kind of uh, see these uh, because they show that people want it and people are trying to um, achieve that. Another example I have is like community kitchens in Amsterdam where I was uh, on exchange, uh, and it's quite similar. So they would have volunteers who uh, use. Uh, I I think most of them would use like rescued food, and then it would be entirely volunteer run, and then they would serve food for like as cheap as like five euros or by donation, and it really brings uh, the community together and everyone can kind of participate. Um, and it really speaks to this abundance because um, it's not always the most efficient uh, to have a kitchen like this, but it is um, a space where different people can use different skills and then they can come together. They can be creative and they can have like a more fulfilling life, perhaps in a different way.
2: Yeah, that'd be, that's I want one add we don't have to always look to uh, the West to see like examples Mm. of this. In Singapore, many examples too. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the best is Ground Up Initiative, Mm. um, which is also a space where you have community gardening, you have a a repair workshop, woodworking, and people can come together and and build community and learn skills. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, they recently had to move out of their original plot and are raising funds for a new home. So do support them if you can. But this also points to the, the problem if within if you try to start these initiatives within a capitalist society right then uh, that's why they had to raise money they had to pay the rent and um it kind of you have to kind of go against this this um idea of real estate speculation or proving the value uh so yeah that that's one example of how the 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 squatted centers in Barcelona challenge it by uh, they 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 insist on not going by the normal um sort of real estate uh complying with the system and paying the rent, but then they, they just occupy the space and assert the right to be there.
1: Mm. Yeah, and since we started talking about these, like seeing examples of um, degrowth in our uh, in, in communities, we can also discuss a bit about maybe the COVID-19 pandemic, which presented like this large external shock to society, but led to both um, community efforts to depend more on each other. And also for people to change their ideas of what a good life for themselves means, uh, you know, especially when they couldn't travel. Um, and there was a lot of um, difficulty in... In fact, it was difficult to connect with other people because we were physically kind of like asked to isolate. But then it actually what led people to want to connect with people more, actually. Do you have any reflections on that period as well?
2: Yeah, I think... Maybe not. Uh, it's not a that complete example of degrowth, but but there are mm. some elements of it because during the pandemic you couldn't uh fly, you couldn't so people were forced to consume less in a way. Mm. But uh, we saw that people had a lot more time to themselves, and and many people were exploring new hobbies or interests. A lot of people took up gardening or baking. Uh, so it does show that, like like what we mentioned earlier, it is possible to adapt, and uh. And doing things like these, also having more time to explore your skills, uh, be more creative, connect with nature. Like a lot of people went to their neighborhood or uh, local nature parks for the first time, right? Or decided to start a home business. So okay. when, when you are free from this uh need to work all the time and then you work so hard that when you have free time, you need to spend all your money to enjoy a flight to Japan so that it's worth it. But then if we can slow down, if we we can we can and and consume less, but we can still enjoy ourselves and we can still have a fulfilling life. Mm. And I think uh, well, one um I think one's called, sort of slogan from degrowth uh, which which is quite uh, makes puts this in perspective is like saying how um we, we need a, a radical abundance. Mm. Um, so even we degrow and uh, reduce our material and energy use, but we can still find abundance in things, it's not about degrowing everything. It's just, but it's also growing um, things that are good, like uh, capacity for community, for connections with each other, you know, for social spaces.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and maybe just to uh, note how you mentioned that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic was not like uh, like a so-called good or perfect example, um, also because I think degrowth scholars emphasize that a planned degrowth is not a recession yeah, it would be like you know the way in which it would be, they envision it at least would be quite different because what happened was very like involuntary and of course it led to a lot of like loss of jobs and stuff as well.
3: Yeah, I mean speaking about you know COVID nineteen, they had effects such as a recession and all that. Mm. But I mean, if you look at you know um, look at the example of Singapore, which managed to avoid a recession through. Government intervention, investing in companies to help uh, them to maintain jobs, things like that. Mm. It's not a far stretch, you know, to imagine that we can do something similar for sort of more degrowth-centered policies. I think, mm. you know, the policies that young Feng you mentioned earlier. I mean, it's not a far stretch to imagine that governments can do that, but in service of degrowth policies, ones that, as you mentioned, you know, center the community. Uh, as you mentioned, having abundance in a different form, you know. Yeah. I mean, um. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I'll, sure, I yeah. just Sorry, to me.
1: Quickly, uh, mention the example of how um, I think it was NMP Walter Tzerra who, uh, I think kind of outlined um a modular universal basic income, which was also targeted during the COVID nineteen pandemic as a way to provide income security so it's really cool to see that there are um people in Singapore that are really looking at it you know like we talked about about the community side but I think from the policy side um it's a uh, really exciting
2: and also quickly just to add uh and thinking back to to those years I remember how there were government uh payouts to support those who unemployed uh the government also provided like uh Tra- traineeships or internships for those looking for jobs or fresh graduates So those are like already like have elements of, of these proposals that we talked about the basic income and a job guarantee mm.
3: yep um yeah I just wanted to you know touch on a bit on the point about climate justice because you know as you see our focuses on climate justice um so one en- one anecdote I had was during the Labor Day rally, um, you know, speaking to some guy and then uh, just giving him the usual spiel about what SGCR is, why we focus on climate justice. And then he suddenly raised it up like, oh, so does SGCR support degrowth? Then and, and I was like a bit stunned because I'm I'm not an expert on this. <laughs> I'm not both of you. um, So <laughs> I couldn't sort of make the link correctly. Mm. I think I went on a bit about, you know, the usual tenets of uh, economic, endless growth unsustainable, blah blah blah. But, um, I couldn't make that link quite so directly. So I was wondering, you know, how would you make the link between degrowth
2: and climate justice? Hmm, I think personally, I, I think uh, using the word degrowth might not be the the best way to go about it from the start. Like, cause then then there's a lot you need to explain and um, I think that the term degrowth is is meant to be provocative and to like something that you can't really co-opt into uh like sustainable development might not say. But um I think maybe in one, one way it would be to say that degrowth doesn't mean everyone needs to degrow. And uh it's more it's more of saying like those who have more or consume too much need to degrow, whereas those who do not have enough um um so that those who do who do not have enough have space to grow. And I think uh I also think it shouldn't be that like we say um degrowth is the it's like the the main um banner that we should ask for, like and then everything is included under it, like climate justice, um decolonialism, everything. But it's sort of more like if we if we ask for all these um social policies, then the result would be the outcome would be a degrowth society. Mm. Uh, it's just kind of drawing the links between all these different movements. But I don't think it says that. Everything must come under the banner of degrowth. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Um, I guess just to add, degrowth has also actually been criticized, right, for uh having this quite um, or maybe giving the impression that it's very Eurocentric in its um view. So there has been more um scholars from other parts of the world who are trying to provide like a decolonial perspective. Uh, for example, firstly that there isn't a, also a linear path to development. So there are societies that will need to um increase their like level of services to increase maybe like health and different aspects, um access to food, etc. But then um, what will it mean for them? Like uh, okay, I guess I'm stumbling here, but basically. Um, there's like two camps like thinking about what does degrowth mean for um, countries in the global south and one is that um they have to grow because it's unfair right like the, it should be redistributed from the global north to the global south but then there's also another camp that says that that itself pushes this idea that development is linear and that um, we have to go from point A to point B. We have to reach like a certain level of development. Um and I guess what I currently think makes sense is that there's no question that the global north needs to degrow, right? Like firstly, because uh our planetary boundaries are being breached. We know that you know climate change 1.5 um is not looking very realistic right now. And if the entire planet is uninhabitable, then there's no well-being to speak of Um, but then what the global south gets is that space to then think for itself uh, and determine um, what they want to use how they want to use the resources that is then like kind of made more available because the global north is not just kind of taking and taking and taking basically Um, yeah and I guess just like a little shout out about the minimum income standard studies i think that itself is like um uh, an example of how within singapore uh income inequality is a big problem and it so degrowth is not about only about asking everyone to consume less because it's really about redistribution so that um Everyone can have a good life, and not just a good life for some. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So so if you um, I think the the the, the minimum income standard is a, a good example because it shows that um there are many people who are below this level now, right? And then obviously they they need to, um they need to grow their income so that they can reach this minimum standard of living. What and then on the other hand, there are many people who are like many times above this level, and uh, that's where. The, those people have the space to degrow. So I think that there will be a response to people who say like, oh, I'm not learning enough, I, I don't really I, I don't really have a good life yet. And for your point on the global south, I think we also need to recognise that a lot of this inequality is rooted in colonialism, both past and present. And an example of that is Palestine. So here in Barcelona, Research in Degrowth, which organizes my program and many others in the Degrowth community have joined local actions in support of Palestine and against Israel's genocidal actions. Because there isn't much point in trying to do all the things we talked about earlier if there isn't a baseline level of human rights to to work from.
1: Okay, so then I guess it brings us to more of like a Fun. I mean not that fun, because I always feel like sometimes when I talk about degrowth, then it I kind of ends with this feeling of we're still not there yet, you know, and it's uh it feels very far away. But um do you think that like there's hope? Um like what are what gives you hope when it comes to like maybe um having like a degrowth society in the future? Mm,
2: I think what gives me hope um growth and also just for the whole climate justice movement is, is every other people who are uh, working in community organizations, cooperatives, uh, like Ground Up Initiative that I mentioned earlier, or all the similar other like Ground Up uh, initiatives in Singapore that, that are not named that, uh, where people are willing to contribute the time and energy to build something that is their own and also um, uh, goes back to the community and I think we need we need more of such spaces and uh, where people have the freedom to do so and that, that's really how i think um, a ground up movement can begin to to spread these ideas
1: mm-hmm. yeah i think same Um, i think it's also like reading sometimes history is also like really useful even though i know we talked about we're talking about the future right but then Sometimes when I read histories, uh history books which try to show that um there's this book called Um Utopia for Realists uh by a historian. Um and it was like, whoa, such a cool um, it really like changed my perspective on what we can how we can use history uh to understand like the future that we want, because it was um looking at how in the past there has been successful, um, or at least, like, um, examples of how, for example, Reagan, <clears throat> who is kind of seen as a very new liberal president, um, actually, um, if I remember correctly, tried to implement, or at least try out, like, a UBI kind of thing in the US. So it just sounds very, like, whoa, right? And then it re- reveals the kind of possibilities that could happen, and that we shouldn't just, like, assume that, Everything's impossible because the system, blah, blah, blah. Um, and like you said, it's a lot about um also not seeing degrowth as like something in the future that will make your life dramatically better. But really just like try to find that right now where you can and you know, slowly and slowly. Um, and then maybe it one day, maybe. <laughs> and mm-hmm. even if even if it yeah. doesn't, it's like still good, I guess. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and, and uh, even Singapore history, like a lot of um, mm. the work of Low Singh, racist mm-hmm. uh, histories of movement in Singapore, like talks about how in the past, uh, when people still living in, in Singapore, still living in, uh, uh before the kampongs were cleared, people also practice these ideas, like uh, sharing resources together, having a, a common pool of uh, mutual aid communities, or workers' organizations. So there is also this history of... um. Uh, mutual aid and support and, and the idea of the commons in Singapore and uh, I think it's it's been lost but it's also, it will also be good to like revive or uh, relearn from from these historical examples mm.
3: Yeah, I mean thanks to both of you for the conversation uh, because I'm not very much in the degrowth community or movement so I learned quite a lot from this Um, I guess what I like about the movement is that uh, it provides an alternative way of living uh, in this economic system. you know, It sees people as more than just economic digits contributing to a number percentage point for GDP, things like that. And it's also not pie-in-the-sky thinking. I think as you all both have mentioned, there's a lot of already existing examples of local communities which practice their own form of degrowth, even though they may not call it that. There are policies such as UBI, which have been carried out in the small scale, perhaps not on the larger scale yet, but that will depend more on political will. So it's not that we haven't, you know, invented these policies. They are present. We just need the political will to do it. So I think that's what gives me hope, you know, that one day, even though we may not call it degrowth, things like that, but you know, we will Hopefully prioritize this alternative way of living. Yeah, that prioritizes on human flourishing uh, ground-up communities and so on. Yeah.
0: And that's the end of this episode. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it thought-provoking. Do check out the references in the show notes. And um, besides some of the stuff we mentioned during the podcast, we also included some additional resources and links, including a semi-active Facebook group for people interested in degrowth in Singapore. See you at the next Climate Copy jam.